it's perfectly possible to have a strong nation that people feel patriotic about and think is a good project because the nation state is the best thing we have found, in my view, to do politics within and manage uh, human affairs within, uh, while believing that nation-state should be run in as free market, small government, liberal, open to the world way as possible. Welcome to Parallax Views, an IEA series of conversations about the politics of culture. My name is Mark Blendenning and today I'm very pleased to be uh, talking to David Frost. Uh, I've been looking forward to speaking with David because he's uh, one of the few figures in uh, public life today who does the vision thing. Um, so much conversation and commentary about contemporary British politics are conducted in a very siloed and fragmented way, uh, whereas David is very much a big picture uh, type of thinker as well as a prominent public figure. David deserves a very long introduction, but uh, you're not going to get one <laughs> because of the shortage of time. Uh, suffice to say that David has been uh, a senior uh, diplomat, a former ambassador, official in the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, member of the House of Lords, member of the cabinet and most famously uh, the person who negotiated the exit agreement with the European Union for Boris Johnson. Um, could I start by asking you before we come on to broader political matters, I, I'm very keen to find out about what you know they would have called what they would have described as on, on the X factor as your journey uh, politically. Uh, how did someone who was a career civil servant from 1987 um, become the most prominent spokesman today in public life for free market and culturally liberal ideas? One might have assumed um, that you would have gone on to become head of a quango, you'd be listening approvingly uh, in your, your home to podcasts by Rory Stewart and Alistair Campbell, uh, uh, that you would be part of, you know, the proverbial blob, but you obviously are not. So how did that come about? Well, um, thanks for uh, having me here, Mark. It's, it's good to talk. I think, um, you know, my own intellectual journey... Um, without going into the detail, really. I, I started off in the, the Labour Party, as I said, a long time back when I was a student. Um, and I guess as I went into to public service, I still had the the sort of conventional beliefs of, you know, young people in, in Labour at the time. But it was, it was pretty soon knocked out of me. And uh, I think for me, the decisive time was going to Brussels in the, the 90s, where I... I gradually realise that uh, the way the European worked was uh, rather anti-free market, pretty status, not working in the interests of the UK. And I was a small minority, obviously, in the Foreign Office in thinking that. And everything from that has, has followed. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think I am, unfortunately, 
unusual in thinking these things uh, as a civil servant. Um, it shouldn't be like that. We need cognitive diversity in the civil service as everywhere else if we're to, to work effectively. I mean, do you think that the, the sort of managerial uh, public sector class um, is evolving into a distinct uh, sort of semi-self-conscious political movement? Uh, does it have a collective sense of interest? Or is it just coincidental that all the, you know, the top civil servants seem to have you know, exactly the same views on virtually every issue? I think it's... Um... I think it is a bit more complicated than that. So when I joined the Foreign Office in the late 80s, it was a pretty small-c conservative organisation. It seems almost kind of ridiculous to think of it like that now, but it definitely was. And it gradually changed. And I, th I think what happens is the civil service re represents the currents in wider society and wider society has changed and so does the civil service. The difference in government, of course, is that you can remain untouched by reality and the pressures of real life to make a living to kind of interact with the real world in a way that you can't in the the private sector in the end reality tells in the private sector in government you can kind of pretend it doesn't always have to be like that and i think that's why you see these extreme forms of you know diversity and quality inclusion you know kind of reluctance to look at um, how economies actually prosper and succeed uh, in the real yeah. world. It's easier in government to kind of remain aloof from it. I mean, you've written, um, uh, I was reading one of your articles recently in which you were arguing that a sort of semi-official state ideology is now sort of coming to fruition, mm. is, uh, which is an incredibly dangerous thing, isn't it, in a democracy when... The civil services, like the police, are meant to be non-partisan. Yeah, exactly. And of course, it goes more widely. It's you know, it's the public sector more broadly, not just the uh, the civil service. That if you um, if you espouse you know a certain set of views, uh, you will find it difficult to hold down a job in a lot of the public sector. That's just the reality of it. You have to keep quiet about them and. I, I think that is extremely damaging, worrying, troubling. I don't quite understand how it's been allowed to happen under a mm. conservative government, uh, but it, but it has, and it it's really worrying. Yeah, I mean, I was just talking to a Labour friend of mine who's a, a local councillor in London. I mean, who's just been booted off uh, the cabinet in his uh, his council. Uh, because he's opposed the transgenderization of the only female public lavatory in his borough <laughs> and has been told he will not be standing at the next set of council elections. So we've got this extraordinary and bizarre intolerance now yeah. where any kind of nonconformity is now just immediately punished as if we were living almost in a sort of one-party state. I know it sounds a bit shrill to say that, but... It is kind of extraordinary, isn't it, what's happening mm. in every kind of sector of British society. I mean, we saw the Nigel Farage, you know, Coote's mm. uh, debanking thing. I mean, there's something strange going on, isn't there? I, I, there is, and I don't think any of us really got to the root of 
kind of want mm. uh, what has produced it. I do think a big part of the problem is the weak culture of free speech generally. I don't know whether that's a cause or a consequence, mm. but it's definitely around. And this sense that, you know, we can't agree to disagree about things, that people who think certain things should just be quiet because their words are harmful and it's better not to, to say them. This is a really new thing. And I think if we had a stronger culture of free speech, some of these idiocies would just sort of fade in the, the sunlight. They wouldn't be sustainable. It's subject to real debate. Uh, so we need to do something about that. We, we have not allowed um, free speech to... Um, flourish in the way that we we should have and that that is new i think yeah i mean moving on and but sort of closely connected to what you've just said um i, I want to ask you about the broad terrain um cultural terrain that the conservative party um will have to face um or continue to face after the next uh, general election, the terrain it'll have to operate in. I mean, playing sort of devil's advocate for a moment and being rather downbeat, um, will it not be very difficult for uh, a reformed Conservative Party to compete electorally, um, uh, given the sort of changing nature of the culture? So, you know, let me just identify three things. Mm. First of all, it seems to me that there are less people involved in particularly business who are now the sort of people who want to vote for lower taxes, lower regulation, the sort of entrepreneurial class. Now a growing percentage of the business class seem to be people who want an economic safe space. They want to work from home. Some of them like greater regulation because their jobs as PR, uh, HR type mm. people are linked to, you know, the state actually uh, sending out all kinds of diktats that they then have to enforce. Uh, growing percentage of the middle class seem, especially in the southeast, seem to be sort of politically woke, obsessed by climate change, net zero, um, uh, they, they're instinctively anti-patriotic. Anti mm. They like the EU because it's precisely because it isn't uh, democratic. And then also, will a Conservative Party of the future, if it returns to government with a different sort of prospectus, have the problem that the managerial new class will try to prevent it from doing anything because of the Equality Act, um, uh, because of the Human Rights Act, the whole you know phenomenon of judicial mm. review. So, how, how will the Conservative Party of the future operate? So, um, it will be difficult. Uh, we have to recognise that the culture has got away from us, and we are in part responsible for that. I think. So, first thing is, politics is about persuasion. If you don't talk about your ideas, if you give in to the ideas of your opponents, you can't expect people to kind of come back to you and do what you want to do. And I'm afraid for the last 20 years, we have not spoken up about 
the value of free markets, the value of economic liberalism, the value of running your own life and not allowing government to get in the way. And we have given too much to the uh, weirder forms of, of social liberalism. And uh, you know, the, the Conservative Party is obviously a divided church on some of these questions, and people can see that. So we've got a situation, as you say, where all the opposition takes one set of views and a good chunk of the Conservative Party does as well. So the arguments that we stand for have not been made and we must now start making them properly even if it's painful and even if in the short run people say it's nasty, you know, we, we should be, we should you know, go with the, the zeitgeist. I think, you know, it's always been, well for a long time anyway, it's been unfashionable to be a Tory you know, I'm not sure that the the culture in that sense is any worse than it was 20 years ago. The phenomenon of shy Tories who didn't talk about it mm. but still voted for them has always been there. <clears throat> of course, we did offer something for people's self-interest. We did offer tax cuts. We did offer things that uh, people liked, even if they didn't acknowledge it. Well, we're not offering those things now. So you, you must expect the culture to be dominant in, in these areas. Finally, I think... You know, again, it's always been true that big business has, um, uh, you know, been, um, uh, how shall we say, you know, it, it has worked with governments. It doesn't like disruption. It doesn't like entrepreneurialism. You know, it likes to, if it can, um, uh, squeeze out competition. And that's always been the case. So I don't find it surprising that we're seeing some of these phenomena in a slightly different form nowadays. The answer to all those things is politics about persuasion. Speak your ideas, explain what you think, you know, have a coherent set of views about the world and get them out and start explaining them. And you know that is going to take time. The work that Mrs Thatcher did in the 70s about markets, about free markets, about liberal economy, it's all got to be done again, unfortunately. And the sooner we get on with it, the better. And, and plus, of course, in relation to the culture, because at least in the sort of 70s and 80s, leaving, putting to one side, you know, the very hard uh, sort of Marxian left yeah. who didn't believe in free speech, mainstream centre-left people, you know, were impeccably uh, politically liberal, yes. if not economically liberal. But now... Even the mainstream left, I mean, we'll come on to that uh, a bit later, but the mainstream left is now, you know, dominated by people who clearly do not believe in free speech yes. on, on kind of a whole range of issues. Yes. So that, that that's more of a test. But we also have a problem, or do political liberals not also have a problem within the Conservative Party, as you, as you were saying? I mean, people like Theresa May and... I know Caroline Noakes and Alicia Kearns and people seem to be going along with this new left agenda on cultural issues. Yeah. I, I mean, that is obviously one of the new things in politics, that, mm. that kind of values and culture are becoming just as important as, as the traditional free market state split, although they are, I think, connected in, in, in some way. I, I mean, I... I Personally, I think the Conservative Party has become too broad a church. It feels as if sometimes there's no opinion that, you know, could not be contained yeah. within the bounds of the Conservative Party nowadays. You know, there are statists, there are free marketeers, there are, 
you know, kind of trans rights advocates and there are strong social conservatives. And I don't think you can continue like that. So I think there is a, the Conservative Party has always obviously been quite a broad church and had different views within it. But I still think there was some philosophical coherence on some of these issues. And, you know, that, that seems to have been frittered away in, in recent years. And to me, the idea that you can find people in the Conservative Party who think that the tax suspend burden is okay where it is and could safely be a bit higher even than where it is now. That is not a conservative opinion for me. That is not something we should be giving space to. But 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 there it is. Yeah, uh, indeed. So um, you you made um, you gave a very major speech to the northeast Tories. Uh, quite recently and I was wondering if you kind of could encapsulate your kind of broad vision for how a party of the centre-right should should change compared to, to now. Well, I mean, what would be your, your you know, big themes to, to revitalise the, the Conservative Party after so, it presumably loses the next election? Well, I, I, on that point, let's, let's see. You know, I don't want, I don't want to give <laughs> well, up. That's my view, lot. I know, that's not I yours. Mean, if we had an election tomorrow, I, I, don't, I wouldn't give much for our chances, but, you know, yeah. things can change, yeah. and, and let's see. One shouldn't despair quite yet. Um, so my view is that the, the right mix is, is what I call sort of, um, on the one hand, freedom and growth, in the economy, on the other hand, nationhood, rebuilding the country. And it often gets thought that if you're in favour of free markets, you must also be a sort of globalist. And I'm trying to use the word non-pejoratively, but you know, you're happy to see the nation state kind of weakened. You like international institutions, you like the IMF, you know, you you believe in that sort of world and similarly it's also often thought that if you kind of believe in the nation and borders and this sort of thing you must also be a protectionist and a statist and i don't see why that either of those things are true it's perfectly possible to have a strong nation that people feel patriotic about and think is a good project because the nation state is the best thing we have found in my view to do politics within and manage uh, human affairs within uh, while believing that nation state should be run in as free market small government liberal open to the world way as possible and that's that's my view about where so we should go. So would it be fair to describe you as a national liberal uh, I mean, there's this fissure. Uh, there are lots of fissures, as you have alluded to, within the you know the contemporary Conservative Party. Uh, but some people on the you know more classically liberal mm. wing of the party are concerned by the emergence or the attempt to inject a sort of national conservative agenda, which seems to be just to echo uh, various themes coming out of America. Mm. There was the big National Conservative Conference yeah. a few months ago around the corner from here. Um, so would you accept that that is a pretty major uh, line of distinction within the modern centre-right between what I would call national liberalism, mm. and which you seem to be espousing, 
and on the other hand, more authoritarian, more religiously influenced uh, national conservatism. So I think I, all these words have become uh, in a kind of gradually deprived of meaning or rather they mean different things to different people. So, you know, I wouldn't describe myself as a national conservative or a national liberal or, or any of these these things really, or at least I, I don't think the words are usefully meaningful to the people who are, who are kind of listening to me. I think that um, I am less worried by... Um, the social conservatism of national conservatism, I think that has a legitimate place in the conservative kind of worldview. I am worried by the protectionism and statism that you know some in the mm. national conservative movement seem to have. You hear people sometimes talking about business in the way that Jeremy Corbyn would have talked about business as, you know, a force that dissolves all normal human bonds and leaves people in kind of servitude to global multinationals. I don't think that. I think that's a wrong uh, approach. Um, but I do think that it is reasonable to talk about the kind of traditions of your country, which includes a religious tradition, and to think that's part of what makes up a national identity. And a national identity is part of what makes a nation a workable unit. So I'm, I'm not so worried by that. And indeed, I think we've gone so far in this country in kind of you know, dissolving the country as a sort of meaningful, you know, some people don't really seem to kind of believe that Britain as a country is a meaningful or worthwhile thing at all, or they think it's a constellation of four other countries that just happen to have come together for convenience. I think it's gone so far that we need a bit of pushback um, about our history, our traditions, border control, uh, and connected stuff like defence and, you know, cracking down on crime, the sort of things that make, you know, non-economic life worth worth having. That is all really important. And uh, But I don't see any contradiction between that and saying the government ought to be a lot smaller than it is now. We ought to allow people much more personal freedom and autonomy than they're, they're getting at the moment. That we should not have the sort of lifestyle hectoring and controls that we're, we're getting. Um, and that the country should be as open as possible to the world and our friends in terms of uh, trade. I, I, I just don't get why this has become a unfashionable mix of policies in recent years. It was actually, you know, to a large extent, what made Mrs Thatcher succeed, and I don't see why it won't succeed again. Yeah. I mean, a specific issue I'd like to raise with you, uh, which I suppose possibly goes to, to the heart of the conflict between the type of conservatism you represent uh, with, on the one hand, the new left, but also... Uh, possibly with some elements within the Conservative Party, um, is the issue of the online safety bill. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems to me extraordinary that a government calling itself Conservative would push with the great enthusiasm that Nadine Dorries and Boris initially pushed mm. this piece of legislation which the left have been campaigning for for, for decades, whereby the state needs to regulate 
the media and now the the internet in the most extraordinary kind of detail. Yeah. And a lot of people on the right support this because, you know, they think there's too much uh, sexy stuff uh, that, you know, young people can access and that needs to be clamped down on. So you're getting the kind of authoritarians of uh, the national conservative type, but also, you know, the modern left, contemporary left, uh, are coming together and a conservative government is delivering them what they want. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think it's a monster, the online safety bill, obviously. It's, it's a bit better than the first version, but, but it's still a monster. Uh, it tries to do too many different and contradictory things, and it gives too much power to unaccountable state organs. And I think it's going to be a real problem. I, I do think, I wish the government had just focused on a much narrower uh, kind of bill that concentrated on... Um, protecting children, enforcing age limits, trying to kind of ring fence that aspect of it and say everything else is fine, it's, it's up to you. Yeah. But unfortunately the protection of children attitudes have spread out into the wider debate about free speech online so that it's, it's become almost like the government has a job to protect you from anything mean or uncomfortable or difficult you might come across online and I, I, I think that's yeah. damaging. Where, where that is damaging. Going to end? Yeah. It's potentially infinite the yes. amount of uh, you know, censorship that that I mean, mindset I, would uh, you know. Every time uh, I to. open social media I get a stream of people telling me you know what they think of me in the most intemperate, most unpleasant I can imagine. terms. And mm. you know, I I don't like that. But there's a block button, there's a close button. I don't have to look at it. I certainly wouldn't say the government needs to protect me from it. And I just think we all need to be a bit. When you're grown up, when you're an adult, you you should behave like an adult, and uh, you know, yeah. just put up with things. Get on with your life. Don't yeah, worry about I mean, nobody's so forcing you to no. go on the internet Absolutely. or engage in no. public life. I mean, it's a choice you've made. But it seems to me this is part of a wider uh, sort of anti-humanism um, that, that has crept into um, our society. And that makes uh, a, a liberal society sort of impossible. Because if you define everybody as being vulnerable, everybody needing protection, not just from sort of physical violence but also from words and lines of yes. argument then that is a sort of slippery slope it seems to me towards some sort of authoritarian state yeah i worry very much about what we've seen in in recent years and um you know we all saw during the camp pandemic the kind of controls that the social media companies were induced to uh, impose on expressions of certain kinds of opinion and they they haven't entirely gone away even now um you know the, the videos podcasts are taken down by some companies because they transgress a political judgment rather than a, a legal one and um i think this is what i want to say i think this is really really problematic and i mean that in itself even using that word well, I know. shows <laughs> how I, uh, and we've all got the virus has spread. Yeah. But I, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I'm beginning to think this country at least needs a some sort of free speech act that polices the boundaries and you know it says that you know in, defines the conditions in which free speech 
uh, is possible. The obvious risk for that is that trying to pass any such thing just produces a further set of conditions and constraints, so it's not straightforward. But the, the space is being closed gradually for free debate about certain things, and somehow we've got to put a stop to that. Um, my last question uh, relates really to your view of what is happening on the left, because obviously that uh, has a, a major impact on how a centre-right of the future uh, responds to it. Um, is it too dramatic and shrill to suggest that the contemporary, what I call the culture control left, is actually evolving into a fundamentally uh, anti-liberal an anti-democratic political movement, that there's a logic at its heart now to do with um, ideas, postmodernist ideas relating to the power of language, mm. um, which mean that it'll just inexorably, if it's allowed, continue building upon um, a sort of legislative base mm. which is incredibly oppressive. I mean, a, a left-wing friend of mine um, of, of a, a more traditional stripe says that he believes the left is now a sort of proto-fascistic uh, movement. Uh, how would you characterise the modern left and how should the centre-right respond to it, its, its new kind of form? Yeah, so there's obviously an um, extremist left um, which you know, was very strong under Corbyn is still very strong but less strong in the current Labour Party and it is dragging the left more broadly leftwards. You know, For all that Starmer is trying to reinvent himself as a, a Blairite, he has to manage this part of his party and I've no doubt we'll see it come out again if they, they do win the, the election. I, I think broadly what we're seeing is I mean, in a way, maybe the, the far left is just more honest about what they want to see. But actually, I think some of these ideas are quite widely spread across the political spectrum. The belief in control, the belief in constraint of freedom and normal activities is, is quite strong. And actually, I fear that the, the whole net zero thing is, is, is a big part of the reason for this that is become defined as this existential crisis in support of which um, constraint on your lifestyle, your activities, the kind of normal behaviours is all justified. And that is obviously, you know, clear on the left. It's also clear on part of the right, I think. Um, I fear things like, you know, digital currencies, central bank or, or otherwise, and the ability this gives to governments to cut off funding. Um, I, I guess I just generally fear um, that we are handing too many powers to, to a government to um, constrain behaviour, constrain normal uh, free activities by autonomous people and that isn't just phenomenon on the left at the moment it's stronger on the left but the worrying thing about it is how widely it is spread and how few people 
you hear speaking up for the free individual who's allowed to make up their own mind about things and live their own life in their, their own way. That's the countercultural thing nowadays. Yeah, and that is the thing. I think that you know, you've gone to the root of it, that um, people I would refer to as progressives in, in the liberal tradition need to confront because virtually nobody in public life uh, seems to believe in the idea of the autonomous individual. Okay. So we're seeing a sort of counter-enlightenment, uh, a new counter-enlightenment. We're going back to a sort of pre-modernist period where everybody was seen as in some way the bearer of a particular role, as being in some way determined by forces beyond their control. So it mm -hmm. seems to me we've regressed or are regressing to a pre-enlightenment period. So for me, it's the opposite of progress. I mean, mm. it's the opposite of being progressive. I mean, I'm, I'm always reluctant to describe it as pre-enlightenment because I feel it, it kind of plays into the narrative that, um, you know, we, we, the world lived in a repressive religious community for sort of 1,600 years and then suddenly came out of it, whereas actually I think... Christianity in particular, but but other religions too, have been a big part of sort of defining the autonomous individual and oh, the absolutely. I mean, particularly the sort of non-conformist tradition. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's a bit more more complicated than that. So I think I, I struggle to find the words sometimes. It, it, it's it's almost as if we're going back to a world where people should know their place and not aspire to the normal things that, you know, over the last hundred years people have thought they might aspire to, to travel, to earn more money, to look after their family, to kind of broaden the range of human potential and aspiration. Which is and now defined as being privilege. Yes. And something and it, exactly. by implication you shouldn't be allowed to have. Yes. Or should be taken away from you. Yeah. And, you know, gradually these ideas become normalised. You know, five years ago, the idea that you would uh, constrain people's abilities to take flights, for example, that, that was a sort of freakish opinion. Now it is debated, you know, it's beginning to be debated as an idea. Give it another five years and it's going to become normal. Um, you know, constraints on where you can drive is another uh, kind of aspect of that that's gone a lot further down the road constraints on when you can use your electricity in your own house well that is kind of coming in the greater mm. interest and you know that all these things only seem to go one way and we risk ending up in a situation you know down the road where you live your life at the mercy of and under constraints set by an extremely strong state. And that's well, we got a glimpse of that in COVID, in the pandemic, and I didn't like it very much, and I don't want to go back there. And I think that's a great note, uh, Lord Frost, too, and a very positive note on which to end our conversation, which I found fascinating, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Great, thank you very much. Thank you.